Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for this Tuesday, March 23rd. Coming up, we'll talk about the two Michaels waiting for a verdict in China, plus a 6,000-year dormant volcano erupts in Iceland, and more questions about the vaccine rollout here in the province and what we know now. All of that coming up next here in the pod. Let's get to the latest on the two Michaels. Just breaking in the last few hours, the U.S. now calling on China to immediately release those two detained Canadians. Kevin Garrett faced the same process. He was detained himself in China for two years, and he writes about his experiences in the book Tears on the Window. And Kevin Garrett joins us here now on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Kevin, good afternoon. Appreciate you coming on. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Great to be here. What we're watching right now, what's unfolding with the uh, two Michaels, I have to believe, is this all eerily similar uh, for you and uh, what you went through? Very, very similar. For Michael Spavor, he was in the same court building I was in. He's staying in the same prison I was in. You know, everything is very much the same. I know he'd be going through things like for those, uh, well, 60, uh, six months of isolation interrogation and 19 months in a, in a prison. And in the prison itself, uh, you know, you, you don't get fed all the time. You know, there's, I, I figured out, uh, 28.4% of the time, there was no food to buy, and you have to buy everything in prison. And you're, I was in, uh, including myself, 14 people in a cell, so no privacy whatsoever. It's very challenging, very difficult. How much information would they have or be uh, privy to uh, as to uh, what's going on, what's happening, what uh, Canada's uh, response even is to their imprisonment? Uh, would they have any inkling, any idea at all, do you think? They would have very little. I think Michael uh, Kovrig might have a little bit more because he was in the diplomatic corps before this, but uh, they would have very little information. I knew nothing of what was going on. I didn't know that Canada arrested a Chinese spy, and that's why they took my wife and I, because we were bartering chips, really big, basically pawns in this whole thing, nothing that we had done. You know, we were like them. We were falsely accused, abducted, and, and detained for a long time, 775 days for us. And I can only imagine how, uh, I mean, traumatic that whole situation is, but even more so when you can't even figure out why you're there or what's going on. Yeah, and for them, they would they said they're spies. The same for us. They said, you're spies, you're charged with espionage. And I'm thinking, how did they get us so wrong? You know, because all we did, we spent 30 years in China. We were, you know, we helped an orphanage. We had ran a coffee shop house. We had a, uh, you know, a translation company. We did different things over years. We taught English. We studied Chinese. You know, we did all these kind of things. Nothing to do with spying or espionage. But again, we were pawns in this political game. But through all this, I mean, we found that our faith uh, sustained us and got us through everything. Well, that was my very next question for you. How did you make it through? How did you get through that ordeal? Well, basically waking up every morning and say, God, you've got to help me again because I can't do this on my own. And it was, it was like that every day and multiple times a day. You know, one of the great things was I had my Bible with me during the whole time. I kind of fought for that at the very beginning because they took me back to our apartment. My wife was taken off to this isolation area, and I was there later, but uh, didn't know she was in the same place. They ransacked our apartment, and one of the things I grabbed when they said, get some clothes for you and Julia, was my Bibles, our Bibles. And, uh, you know, they allowed us to take them. But there was a bit of a, I'll call it a discussion, uh, that allowed me to have those and get Julia hers. What would, uh, if you could speak to either the Michaels, the, the two Michaels, what would you say to them? What, what advice uh, would you give them, Kevin? Uh, I would say pray, uh, have hope, and I would say this will end. You know, in the midst of it, you know, every moment feels like this will never end. And especially even after the trial, they will think, what's next? When will this end? For me, my trial came in April. My de deportation came in September, so almost five months later. 
And uh, but it will end. It's hard. It's incredibly, incredibly hard. The wor- the hardest thing we've ever gone through in our lives. But you know, faith and trust and hope uh, allowed us to get through it. So it was really God who sustained us. As I mentioned off the top, the uh, U.S. is now calling once again on China to immediately release the uh, two Michaels. Do you feel as if, and there's been so much a talk and so much a debate about this, but uh, that Canada has done enough for them? Did, did Canada do enough for you when you were detained, do you think? What I can say is that uh, Canada's doing more for the two Michaels than it did for us. It's making it much more public. It's rallying support from other nations, which is really important to put pressure on China. And uh, I think they are doing a lot. Is it enough? I'm not sure. But uh, I like the fact that they're standing up more, and Mr. Trudeau is standing up more and saying this is wrong. And he's been really saying that from the beginning. But for us, it wasn't the same. But I'm really glad what they're doing. And do you think that the U.S. Uh, once again uh, supporting us and uh, supporting the two uh, Michaels, uh, how much is that going to go towards building? Because, uh, you know, perhaps there needs to be the building of a coalition here uh, around the world uh, saying that this is wrong and it needs to end, that that would truly help them. Exactly. And that's what's been going on. There's been movements in that way where uh, I think it was 56 or 57 nations signed a declaration that essentially uh, hostage diplomacy is wrong. And this is what it is, is hostage diplomacy. The U.S. standing up is great, but there has to be some concrete actions also, not just to saying this is wrong. They've got to do something as well. I believe that. Kevin Garrett, some uh, valuable and a great insight there on the two Michaels. His book is Two Tears on the Window, and you can find out more about the uh, book at twotearsonthewindow.com. But Two Tears on the Window from Kevin Garrett. And Kevin, thanks again for joining us uh, here this afternoon. Thank you. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Okay, perhaps you've uh, seen the drone footage. It's been everywhere the last uh, 24 hours or a little more. It really is incredible. If you haven't seen it, you got to look this up uh, online as a long dormant volcano has erupted in Iceland. And joining us now for more on this is Fiona Darcy, a volcanologist in training, science communicator, and it says right here, enthusiast of all things earth and environment. And Fiona joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Fiona, how are you? Hi, great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, First off, could you just clarify, I think this is the first time I've uh, ever come across this term, uh, volcanologist. Is that just uh, somebody, a person who uh, looks into volcanoes? Yeah, exactly that. So I'm uh, studying as a scientist who studies volcanoes, and so I'm getting my PhD right now at McGill University. Very cool and good for you. And uh, what have you uh, thought about this drone footage we've all seen the uh, last uh, day or so? It's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. I wish I was there to uh, see some of those lava flows in person. I have friends in Iceland from when I was there, and it looks amazing. Well, tell us a bit about how, do we know how this volcano became active again? Yeah, so actually for the last few weeks, um, starting at the end of February, there were um, some earthquakes that began occurring in the area. So this is a southwest Iceland called the Reykjanes Peninsula. So there were a lot of these little earthquakes occurring, which are quite common. They occur in swarms before eruptions, and they actually indicate that magma is intruding below the surface. Um, so it wasn't unprecedented that this would uh, begin, but it wasn't until Friday that the uh, fissure actually opened up and had some lava flows for us to visualize. All right, so I'm just trying to picture this in my own mind. So there's uh, some tremors, uh, a bit of an earthquake, and obviously the earth has uh, shifted, and that got things kind of, the storm brewing once again, if you will, uh, beneath this volcano? 
Yeah, we definitely had indication that there was some magma still still within the Earth, but still moving up, getting closer to this one area. So the uh, the Iceland Meteorological Office, who monitors these things, had some some good indications that at some point we would see some lava poking up. Yeah, and tell us about this uh, lava, because it's incredible, again, watching this uh, drone footage, and it just kind of uh, slinking its way down the uh, terrain in the uh, mountainside uh, there. Do we have any idea just how hot that lava is? Oh, yeah. Um, so that lava is uh, of a basaltic composition. So just like we saw in Hawaii in 2018, it's a very flowy kind of lava that likes to uh, make its way slowly and, and form little ropes and lava flows. So that'd be around 1,000 degrees Celsius. Um, so quite, quite, quite a hot lava, actually. Yeah, 1,000 degrees Celsius, I can only imagine. <laughs> That's warm. That's warm without a doubt. So what does an event like this do to the environment? How does it affect the environment when we see uh, this volcano rumbling uh, and erupting and this 1,000-degree uh, lava coming down the uh, terrain? What does it do to the environment? Yeah, well, so this kind of eruption is, is a pretty small-scale one in, in terms of volcanic eruptions. So we see this hot lava coming out. And associated with it is the, the hot gases that escape as well. So um, with those, you're going to have some concerns about the local, um, the local uh, presence of gases that could be toxic if you're really close by. However, um, since it's a smaller eruption, that tends to stay local and won't affect the surrounding cities. So then the local environment's just going to get that uh, coverage of lava flow but luckily, the, the history of this region thousands of years ago um, was just having these eruptions covering the area already in lava flows. So it's actually going to fit right in with the landscape that is there um, and just continue to grow on Iceland as it is the land of volcanoes. Okay, but does this have the ability, I would think so, with this molten hot lava to really kind of reshape the topography? Yeah, definitely. We, we've seen some buildup of these cones with the lava spilling out and over them. Um, but the thing about Iceland is because it's so volcanically active, there's not a ton of uh, tree vegetation uh, in those kinds of areas already. So there might be some moss that's getting covered up and things like that. But um, the topography change in that area in particular won't be too big. And right now the lava is actually, I think it's less than a kilometer cubed uh, volume. So. It's not a huge, huge amount. All right, but what is huge is the amount of time that this uh, volcano has been dormant, some 6,000 years. Do we expect it to uh, be dormant uh, once again, or is it now, have we kind of awakened the beast, as it were, do you think, uh, Fiona, and this is going to continue to burble and, and rumble along? Yeah, so it definitely wasn't uh, erupting recently, and now that it, it has opened up these pathways, um, there is a likelihood that this could occurring in the future but right now uh it seems like things are calming down and it will only last a few a few more days maybe weeks um and certainly in in the future this could come up again in the same region where we have these fissures occurring uh but i don't think anything like a major change will be too concerning all right fiona darcy volcanologist in training fiona thank you so much uh, for helping us all better understand this uh, volcano and uh, best of luck with your continuing studies and thanks for joining us thank you very much appreciate it okay let's run down some of the latest COVID headlines here is dr samantha hill head of the ontario medical association and she joins us on global news radio 640 toronto dr hill good afternoon 
Good afternoon. How are you today, Jeff? I'm well, thanks. Uh, let's start with Ontario doctors. They're worried that not enough of the province's elderly are being vaccinated. Approximately three-quarters have been either vaccinated or have an appointment. Is that enough? So it's absolutely not enough, and it's a very concerning number. We know that the risk increases exponentially with age, and so this is the population that has the most to gain by being vaccinated the idea that we're only reaching 60 or 70 percent of them is heartbreaking. At the end of the day, we know that while people over the age of 80 have represented about 20 percent of our cases, they've represented 95 percent of our deaths. And so this is a population that needs to be vaccinated and we need to figure out how to better facilitate that. Well, that's my next question is, are we going about this wrong with the online portal? As we know, those 80 plus, you know, don't uh, overwhelmingly have the Internet or maybe not uh, used to uh, navigating technology. So did we go about this the wrong way, do you think? Well, I think there are always lessons that we can learn moving forward. I think that we know that the 80 year olds are, let's not be um, ages, some of the 80-year-olds are going to have more trouble navigating online portals. And um, I've heard from many of our members that their patients prefer their environments. They don't want to go to a mass vaccination site. They don't want to get on public transit. They don't want to see a stranger. They spent the last year, year and a half avoiding anywhere where there are a lot of people. It doesn't feel safe and they would rather go to their family doctors. So in that context, I'm really excited about the pilots that have been done with the family doctors. I'm very excited about the six public health units where family doctors have been empowered and enabled to give those vaccines. And I am certainly looking forward to working with the government further to ensure that we get more doses of all of the vaccines feasible into family doctors' offices so that those who can can administer them to their patients. Yeah, is that really key? Do we need to ramp that up? Getting family physicians uh, more involved will certainly help get the vaccination into more arms and in particular into uh, more of uh, the elderly. I think it is key. I think what we see when we talk about family doctors, and we know that family doctors and public health units gave out over 70% of this year's flu vaccines, what we see is leveraging of relationships. People trust their family doctors, particularly our elderly who have in general, been with their family doctor for a while. Their family doctor knows them. They feel safe in that environment. They feel comfortable in that environment. And so we really do need to lean on that infrastructure, lean on those relationships, and allow um, allow people to have access to those vaccines in a space that is comfortable and where they feel confident. All right, let's go from the uh, upper demographic uh, to the lower demographic and uh, younger people. Just before uh, we welcomed you on the air, we were talking to a Toronto ER doctor who made public some uh, x-rays yesterday. You likely saw this in the news. Uh, Just how hard COVID uh, this time around in the third wave is hitting uh, the younger uh, demographic, a younger uh, population. What would your message be to them, Dr. Hill? Uh, Thanks so much for that question. It's so important. So Since the beginning of the pandemic, we've been saying at the OMA and Ontario's doctors have been saying how important it is for even the young people to practice due diligence, that even at a time when most of the mortality and most of the morbidity was seen in our elderly patients, there were still case reports of younger patients getting sick. And even those who didn't die, we were hearing horrible stories about people having long-lasting consequences, trouble breathing, heart disease, vasculitis people who didn't have any of that before COVID. With the variance of concern, we are seeing a definite shift in the demographics. And we are seeing that the variants are more contagious and possibly even more 
virulent or more dangerous once you catch them. And so I'm hearing from members exactly what that physician put put out yesterday, that they are seeing younger patients. They're seeing 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds who are previously healthy coming in with very bad COVID. They're having trouble breathing and they need to be put on a ventilator and they are probably more likely to survive than the 80-year-olds in the same situation, but you don't walk away from that without long-term consequences. All right. Well, sobering message, certainly uh, for our uh, younger people listening. I also wanted to ask you, uh, Dr. Hill, this afternoon about the vaccination rollout and how we're doing, because currently Canada right now is vaccinating approximately 100,000 people a day, which is nowhere nowhere near enough, sorry, to get us to our goal of a vaccine for everyone who wants one by September. Is it your anticipation that the supply is really going to get ramped up in the next few weeks and with it the vaccination rate? Right. So, I mean, we know that initially the log jams or the things holding us back were a combination of supply and where it was being administered. The fact that initially it was only being administered at certain hospitals or certain mass vaccination sites. As we've moved forward, we have increased dramatically the number of people who can give out the vaccine. And yes, that includes the pharmacists, but it also includes, as I mentioned earlier, the family doctors and being able to leverage that. We also know that initially we only had the Pfizer vaccine, which is very finicky and requires specific storage requirements. But the Moderna vaccine has recently been shown to be stable at two to eight degrees. And so that makes it wide open. Almost every facility will have access to a two to eight degree storage area. And so what that enables us to do is very much think about things like using family doctors to help us roll this out. We know that there are more than 10,000 family doctors in the province who are willing and able to administer hundreds of thousands of these vaccines. And so in order to get up to that number, in order to get up to the ability to have everyone vaccinated by, I think it was June 1st, we certainly need to have more people and more vaccines. All right. And finally, I wanted to ask you about AstraZeneca and where you stand on that vaccine, because there was news out of the U.S. earlier this morning that uh, some of uh, what we heard on Monday, that it was now 79 percent effective, uh, was based on outdated uh, data or uh, information. Uh, Where do you currently stand on AstraZeneca? So the first and most important thing is how unfortunate this is, because there was already vaccine hesitancy and having more concerns particularly about AstraZeneca, which has really been through the ringer already, it only increases that vaccine hesitancy and it decreases people's confidence in going out to get their vaccine, which is the last thing we need. Frankly, from a scientific point of view, it's too early to make any definitive conclusions about this issue. We know that there are experts looking at it and I expect that they will respond in due course with a a lot to say at the time. But in the meantime, what we do know is that we have no indication that the vaccine does not work and whatever signals may be present for consequences or adverse events are certainly less than the consequences of COVID. So I know it's not the most reassuring statement, but I do still tell everyone to take the first vaccine that's available to them. The more, you're, the more of us that are vaccinated, the less mutations will occur, the less variants of concern will occur, and the faster we all get back to something that looks like a normal life. All right, Dr. Samantha Hill, head of the Ontario Medical Association, always appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Stay safe. You as well.